I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. You know I've been talking about earned media value for quite some time on this podcast. My friends at Eisenberg have just raised the bar on earned media benchmarks with their social index. Social Index now gives you globally earned media values across a growing list of six geographies for all your KPIs across the top seven social platforms, Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, Snapchat, TikTok, Twitter, and YouTube. You can now visualize these values for deeper analysis, and they have a look-back window over two years of historical comparisons. Social Index is updated daily. Don't get stuck with old data. Over 1,000 companies have used the social index to understand the ROI of their social campaigns. And if you work with a social agency, you should demand they incorporate earned media values into your reports. Get your earned media value for social content. Visit earnedmediavalues.com slash Allen. Again, that's earnedmediavalues.com slash A-L-A-N. For all of us, it's about predicting where the consumer is going and getting half of it right. One of the things we want to do is create ads that don't suck. Embracing change creates great possibility. I'm Alan Hart, and this is Marketing Today. Today on the show, I've got Kevin Keller, E.B. Osborne Professor of Marketing at the Tuck School of Business at Dartmouth College. His focus areas are strategies to build, measure, and manage brand equity, and his textbook, Strategic Brand Management, has been adopted at top business schools and leading firms around the world, and some called the Branding Bible. And as of the 15th edition, he's also the co-author with Philip Kotler on the all-time best-selling introductory marketing textbook, Marketing Management. On the show today, we talk about integrated marketing communications, brand purpose, differentiation, and the fact that it's not dead yet as well as how brands need to evolve, what they need to preserve, what needs to change brand architecture, and also talk about the brands he follows as well as the future of marketing. Well, Kevin, welcome to the show. Welcome to you too, Alan. It's great to be here. Thanks for inviting me. I've been looking forward to this conversation because it's going to be an honor chatting with you. I think most former business school students likely remember using one of your textbooks. Not that you have just one, you have multiple. So I would love to start with just how do you end up in marketing of all the disciplines? Well, it's actually interesting. I started out, I was a math economics undergraduate major at Cornell and thought I was going to go into finance, went to Carnegie Mellon, very quantitative program. And I took the first marketing course and it's now that's almost 40 years ago. So 
hard to believe. And I just fell in love with it. Everything about marketing, I took every elective course, worked for a couple of years and then got my PhD. And I've just been immersed in marketing for the, all of that entire period of time. And I just think I find the consumer psychology, the competitive nature, the whole idea of trying to deliver value and, and quality to people. It's just got just so many things and it's constantly changing. So I really just fell in love with it and continue to be, continue to this day. So it's something I always enjoy reading about, talking about, thinking about, you know, right until now. That's great. It's funny how many people start out in economics or quant and then, and not that that's not in marketing, but then pivot to marketing, which is, I think, more of a broader quality quant, if you will, things. That's interesting. You started there as well. Yeah, I think I'm glad for marketing as a function that you didn't end up in finance. Yeah, no, thanks. <laughs> thanks. <laughs> now, I know last time we talked to you, you said your thesis was on integrated marketing communications or IMC. And I think that remains an important topic to you. you know, but why, why, one, why is it important to you? And then the world of media in particular keeps getting ever fragmented. What should marketers be thinking about? Yeah, no, it's interesting. My thesis actually was about memory factors in advertising. And it's sort of the, one of the fundamental problems with television advertising in particular is that people don't link up ads and brands. They kind of remember the ad, but they don't remember who it's for. And, and certainly don't evoke that at the point of purchase. And so I inspired by ad campaign with Life Serial that starred this little boy called Mikey, where they had to put the photograph of Mikey on the package to remind people that this was the ad they liked and this was the product that was good tasting and healthy that they were advertising. And it was very successful, basically doubled their their share. And I remember it, when I read about that, and it was Jim Bettman, my advisor at, at, at Duke, where I got my PhD, he wrote about it. And I just was so struck by that example because it made so much sense to me. And then that got me into studying memory factors in advertising and really thinking about how to do these sorts of integrations. In this case, it was point of purchase and packaging and television advertising. But I looked at, I began to look at reinforcing television ads with uh, audio tracks on radio, with visual images in magazines. And this was some work I did with Julia Dell, who was also at Duke. And this was all then sort of in the mid 80s. And that was an era where integrated communications sort of took form because there was a lot of promotions going on. PR was becoming more important, direct marketing. And so the agency started talking, YNR talked about the whole egg and Ogilvy talked about orchestration. They all were acquiring these companies. And it was clear that that was the way to manage your marketing communications was through multiple vehicles. But the question was how you, you know, how do you integrate? How do you make sure that one plus one equals more than two and that the whole is greater than the sum of the parts? And so I've been fascinated by that ever since. And obviously with digital coming in, you know, there's just a whole now, you know, even integrating digital is a challenge by itself, not to mention integrating that with other forms of communication. So it just really was something that I found just fascinating and really led to a lot of different research projects through the years in my teaching and everything. And I think it's just a fundamentally important issue. I think it's something that, that all marketers need to be thinking about how to be smarter about it and recognizing that it's not just about trying to say the same message across different communication platforms that you're trying, I always think of it as, as with integrated communications, you're trying to paint a picture in the minds of consumers about your brand 
in their different colors and textures to reflect what the brand stands for. And there's clearly some central elements to that. But any brand is richer than that. And they're trying to make sure there's an emotional side, a functional side. And so really understanding how to mix and match. And that's the main theme I have for integrated communications. And really sort of understanding how to combine in the right way is, I think, really crucial and, and an area that needs more research attention and needs, I think, better thinking, both from academics and practitioners, because I don't think the state of the art is, is as good as it should be. That's interesting. Is it the brand, you know, the brand purpose or the, the, the central brand theme? Is that, in your mind, what makes integrated marketing work or to be integrated, so to speak? Or is there other aspects to you? Well, I think part of it is it's going to be your strategy, your positioning, and what. And if you want to think about it, an essence, you know, that's going to be at the core. And I talk about brand mantras, you know, capturing the essence of your positioning. But, you know, there are also broader concepts. You know, I talk about points of parity and points of difference as being crucial to positioning. But however you want to think of that, whether they're pillars, their values, whether there are going to be some. You're trying to create these associations. You're trying to create awareness. You're trying to create this mental state about your brand. And, and it's got sort of you know, rational, emotional components, et cetera. All of them sort of can, I think, impact. I think, I mean, purpose is, to me, that's sort of a higher order aspect of a brand. It's sort of really what is the bigger picture sort of payoff. If in, I think of it from the standpoint, if I deliver on the positioning to consumer, I deliver on that promise to what you know, my brand can do for consumers, create the right experiences and values, et cetera. What is the bigger outcome of that, that that's created for consumers or society as a whole or whatever that might be? So it's really taking that brand promise and that delivery and then kind of laddering it, it up. All of that can be, you know, all that needs to be sort of factored into communication strategy. It's obviously not going to be the only component of marketing that's going to deliver on that. And that's what marketing is all about. It's about the product and channels and everything else. So it's it's about those direct experiences, it's going to depend on, you know, word of mouth and other things outside the control of the company and communications. But communications often plays a really crucial role in creating intangibles to even making sure that the tangibles themselves and the more functional aspects of a brand are appreciated and understood and differentiated. And so, you know, to me, it's always the one-two punch of great branding is often product and communications, and it's more complicated than that because there are channels and you know many, many other decisions that have to be made. But with those two, if done right, can really are crucial, I think, sort of for brand success. Yeah. We touched on purpose there. You know, I've had a number of guests on the show from Shinola, which is, I don't know if you know them, but they make a lot of different things, but they're kind of an American luxury brand. I think most known for watches and to REI more recently. And uh, the CMOs of both those organizations talk a lot about the causes or the purpose that their brands are in service of. I'm curious to kind of get your point of view on how does purpose play a role in building brands today and what are, there, what are the benefits of it? I think the thing with purpose is there is, I think consumers do care more about products than just what they deliver to them, you know, directly in some sense, the particular benefits that they accrue from that consuming or purchase the person consuming a product or service. But, and I think that's crucial. I think people do care. I think that's one of the major themes that is in the, the book uh, with Phil Kotler, the marketing management textbook. We talk a lot about 
the corporate social responsibility and the community and the environment and just people care sort of what the brand is doing about that. You know, that said, I think it's also really important that people care a lot about the value that they're getting and all the richness of what that construct or that concept means in terms of, you know, psychological value as well as more functional value. And there's, I mean, there's a lot of components to that. And I think purpose really works best when it's really tightly linked to what the particular value creation is associated with or brand promise associated with a, a brand. And so making sure that those two are really closely aligned, I think is, is important. I think that's, and that's true with a, you know, another theme that, I mean, there are lots of themes that you know go on in branding and marketing. I think sort of the emotional side is one that a lot of people talk about and it's, it's importance, the notion of storytelling and narratives. All those are very, very useful ways of thinking about how to take that brand, your brand promise in the value you create and, and the richness you're trying to, to kind of paint that picture in the minds of consumers. But I, I really think it's crucial that they're all sort of linked and integrated and aligned. And I think sometimes the mistakes are when they're almost, you know, they're added on and they're not truly linked. They're, it's just sort of slapped on or it's, it's just something that is disconnected somewhat. And I think that's the strongest brands are so cohesive and the parts, all these different things we're talking about, these different notions come together so well. And that's why they're so strong is that because of that alignment that occurs so that the fundamental value that's being created, the actual more product functions, if you will, and the more rational value ladders up and links to a more emotional payoff, which is in itself, all of that kind of is consistent with the purpose that, you know, the higher order value that's created that, that goes more to the community as a whole or to society or the environment or whatever that is. And that's, I think those brands are the ones that have that consistency and cohesiveness and clarity in the minds of consumers. So to me, that said, again, back one last thing on purpose, because you asked about the benefits. If, you know, I, I am a big believer in that and the importance of having causes and that that's something that I think should be part of the brand promise. And it's part of kind of giving back as a brand. And if you do it well, there's so many benefits. And I think sometimes people don't always appreciate the, maybe the richness of that because it certainly helps with awareness, but it creates a certain personality and imagery for your brand. It can evoke emotions. It can really elicit engagement. And that's all externally. It has great internal value with employees and how they can rally behind the, the cause. And when you think of all those things and how, if it's done properly, and again, just like any kind of sponsorship or cause or any of these kind of programs, you know, the execution and the kind of strategic intent that goes with that is, is so important. But, you know, if, if done right, then you're going to get bottom line benefits because of how much it can help a brand in these different ways. So that's the way I tend to think about purpose is making sure that I appreciate, you know, how to do it right, what the benefits are I get from it, and then most importantly, how it fits into this bigger picture of my brand strategy. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. 
And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. It's great. So one of the things you shared with me was this, I think it was a letter that you wrote, the incoming chair of the Marketing Sciences Institute. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. That, yeah. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. yeah. It was this list of five things you know about marketing. And I want to talk about a few of them because they... They're pretty interesting. Yeah, it's actually an interview, just to be, just to be clear. Oh, okay, okay. Just that, so it wasn't sort of like, it was part of a series that we created, which I guess I can plug on the podcast, yeah. which yeah. is five, the Marketing Sciences do five things I know about marketing, although I always like to think of it as five things I think I know about marketing, but <laughs> I think they wanted me to be more decisive. So I took the bait and I did that. But yeah, exactly. So there were, there were basically five things that were shared in this interview and that was put on the website with Kay Lemon, who is the executive director that followed me there. Okay. So like the first was this notion, and I'm paraphrasing, so apologies in advance, but the first was this, you know, notion of the customer is not necessarily always in charge. And I think at first it struck me as kind of, I wasn't ex exactly sure what you meant, but we also, in popular industry press, we talk about the customer is in charge. And so this kind of threw me for a loop. Can you explain what you meant? Yeah, no, I will. And it's funny because I, I do always say the customer owns your brand because ultimately the value of any brand is the what value gets created in the hearts and minds of consumers. But that's different from saying the customer is in charge. And I think a lot of people talk about how the customer is sort of almost doing the marketing now in effect that the marketers are no longer in control and et cetera, et cetera. So the point I'm trying to make is that just because customers or consumers are empowered, which they are now because of the digital world we live in and their ability to communicate and share the information with each other and about companies and et cetera, et cetera. Just because they're more empowered or are empowered does not mean that they're enlightened nor engaged with a brand. You know, opportunity doesn't mean that people necessarily have that motivation and ability to actually follow up with a brand. And we, in it's just a simple fact. I mean, I, today, all of us are going to be encounter, you know, literally hundreds of brands. If you think of brands broadly in terms of institutions and organizations and not just products and services, I mean, people, I mean, you're just, there's so many. And of those, which are the ones you're going to truly engage with? It's just a fraction. So it's only some of the people, some of the brands, some of the time who are actually going to, to take that effort to actually take advantage of this empowerment to do something in some way. So doesn't mean that's not important. And so I don't want to minimize that. I just, I just think it's important to realize that it's not as simple as sort of this customer base in some totality sort of now kind of quote running things for a brand in some sense or, you know, affecting the fate. It's just, you got to realize there are a lot of people who have zero and you're your customers and they may be your loyal customers and they have zero engagement. And I like the phrase, you know, empowered is not enlightened nor engaged and just recognizing that as long as you keep that in mind. And the question is, how do I enlighten people? And then how do I engage people more?
my customers. Right. So the next one I thought was interesting was differentiation and that there's some sort of like myth that all products are the same now. And I think I hear that in a lot of categories that I work in, you know, we're basically the same. There's little to differentiate on, but I think you're trying to make a point that that differentiation still matters and that I believe that you believe that there's a way that you can differentiate even if you think you can't. Oh, totally. I, yeah, okay. sorry. And I, <laughs> I can't wait to jump in on this one. So yeah, go for no, it. it drives me nuts because I think the idea that you can always differentiate something and that's, it's just a fundamental, to me, tenet of, of branding and in marketing because, you know, we're not about products. So, you know, maybe you can't differentiate the product per se, although even then I think Almost any product now is unlikely to be exactly the same 10 years from now. So the idea that, you know, who's going to be first to make those changes and improvements and everything else. But if nothing else, we always say you're not selling a product. You're basically, you know, satisfying needs and delivering benefits and creating experiences. When you think of it that way, there's so many ways that you can differentiate it with added information, added value, and especially to try to understand how you can fulfill this promise and deliver on this value and these benefits in so many different ways. And so the product is only maybe in even a small part of that. So, you know, that experience. So that's the part I think that it becomes self-fulfilling, I think, and very myopic to sort of just say, well, you know, all products are the same because, and that's because they're thinking of what I think some marketers maybe unfortunately are thinking of, of their product or service, you know, too narrowly and not thinking of it as more of that they are sort of delivering benefits and satisfying needs. And especially if you think about satisfying needs, there's so many ways to do that. And, and I always think about any brand about the potential it might have. And you have to think about that for the products and services and experiences that they create and the needs that they satisfy. How can they achieve that potential and, and do it better than others? So I just think it's really fundamental realization and it's so crucial because there's nothing more important to a brand than to be differentiated and there's nothing more helpful to be differentiated on the basis of the products and services and experiences that are being created right i love the broadening definition of differentiation because i think the marketers i was referencing they're typically thinking about i produce you know widget a or service a and i'm not thinking about all the other touch points or ways in which it customer is engaging with me. That's really smart. We'll switch the gears a little bit, but another notion, kind of the third that I wanted to point out in that interview that you highlighted was what a brand needs to preserve versus change to remain successful. And I was recently doing a round of interviews with Effie winners, which is the award for marketing effectiveness. And Barbie was one of the, one of the winners this past year. I think they kind of epitomize potentially what you're talking about in terms of what to preserve about the brand and what to change with, you know, they're bringing out, you know, professional Barbies. They're bringing out, you know, different literally shapes and sizes of Barbies. So it's not just the traditional shape that everyone knows, but I want to get your, your deeper dive on what you mean by what to preserve and what needs to change. Yeah, no, that's a great question. Actually, it's when you and you had emailed me some ahead of time about the questions. And one of the things you would put on this one was that I you wrote that I recently talked to Barbie and I think they are nailing this right now. And I and I just immediately pictured you talking to Barbie, you know, just the whole <laughs> the Barbie because she now has this persona that's sort of she's she is professional, she's savvy and she she's in charge. So now the product's in charge, I guess. This is an addendum to our previous 
Yeah, it so is. Set of comments. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's great to see the progress that is being made there with that brand. And it's one of those things, it's so important because it's the long-term success, like you said, it's all predicated on moving forward, but moving forward in the right direction. So I always talk about innovation and relevance as being so crucial and innovation in every, and again, to even to refer back to what we were just talking about in differentiation, be constantly thinking of how to create more value and improve experiences and all those kinds of things that are sort of associated with that. So a very broad sense of innovation in the marketing you do, innovating on the marketing itself and how you're reaching consumers and speaking to them and distributing your products and all of those, but doing it in a very, very relevant way that reflects their behaviors and the reality of marketing in 2017 and 18 and 19 as we go forward. And I would say, so at the end of the day, end of the week, end of the month, end of the quarter, end of the year, any marketer has to ask themselves, what have I done to innovate and stay relevant? What have I done to push this brand forward? Make sure pushing it forward at the right direction, at the right pace too. I think the pace is a really important thing because you can try to go too fast, you can you know move too slowly. So it's that continuity and change, I think is the other trade-off that's I always sort of associate with this is, you know, there are things that I think are enduring and central and fundamental to a brand and its marketing and everything about it that you want to preserve. And then there are things you need to change. There are things you absolutely have to do differently. And and it's sometimes hard to stop doing certain things or or give up some aspect of the brand that you, you love, but you know it may not be appropriate for where you want to take the brand going forward. So I really think a lot of this, and a lot of this is just staying really on top of the marketplace and really understanding your consumers and customers and, and, their, and their hopes and dreams and wishes, and you're trying to always be moving the brand in a direction to, to try to you know, achieve that. Right. Talking about this preservation part, I think that's the one that it gives us the most trouble. And I'll give you an example because I just want to get your thoughts on it. You don't necessarily have to comment on this company, but the Coca-Cola company has, has one that stands out in my mind. I think they've always been the Coca-Cola company, but if you look at their portfolio today, you know, they've got more non-carbonated soft drinks in their portfolio than they do carbonated soft drinks. And yet, you know, we're still thinking about the parent brand as the Coca-Cola company. You see bubbles and brown fluids. <laughs> There's probably no special magic here, but like, how do you, as a brand leader, as you're trying to move your company brand or your, your sub-brands or brands within your portfolio, how do you stop yourself from holding to what has always been? You know what I mean? When, when you know you need, to, you need to update your image, potentially. And I think there is, there, I think there's sort of two answers to that. One of them, I think you alluded to with the Coca-Cola, and it's actually good, you know, I think celestrative, which is, you know, it, it is helpful to have a portfolio because different products are going to appeal and different brands are going to appeal to different consumers and different segments. And that gives you the strategic flexibility to do lots of different things and cover the market in the way you want and, and not try to make a brand do too much. So I think that's definitely part of the story. And I think that smart brands have recognized that and brought in certain, and maybe they're sub-brands, but you, if so, usually they're you know very soft endorsement. I mean, usually it's often just straight acquisitions or whatever. Part of that, and then the challenge, like the other, I think the other part of the, that is the core brand and what you do with it to try to, and we just, back to Coca-Cola, I mean, Coke Zero is probably red. I mean, they're literally going to change the look, the actual formulation. So, you know, trying to do, do it in a way that is better, basically. So, and I think that's, 
the mistake is to hang on to what you've done in, done in the past because you did it in the past and you liked it and it was successful and not recognizing that that formula and in, in the Koch's case maybe literally the formula may not be the one that's appropriate for today and that you've got to and maybe more importantly tomorrow and to keep that sort of forward-looking profile i think is really crucial yeah i'm watching coke zero in particular I'm, I'm i can't wait to see how that unfolds you know in the marketplace reaction to it i can't wait to taste it actually i drink a lot, <laughs> I drink a lot of diet coke yeah i need some variety so i i would love to give it a try i'm hoping i like it yeah, yeah, yeah. Me too. I drink a healthy dose of Diet Coke and Coke Zero, so it depends on what you want to go for. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> so this kind of leads us to brand architecture in many ways. We talk about portfolio, and I've got a lot of clients lately that tend to have brand architecture problems, and, and sometimes it's, they're trying to go into new segments or they're trying to compete with quote-unquote disruptive players and they know their core brand just doesn't have the cachet to do that. When we look at that, when I've looked at it in the past, I've looked at, you know, especially as it relates to brand extensions into new, new areas, segments or otherwise, is, you know, the notion of, does my brand have permission to go there, my core brand, or do I need to create a sub-brand or, or something like that, as well as forgiveness. So if I make a mistake in that area, am I going to hurt my master brand more than I would have? helped it through that extension. But I'm curious how you think about brand architecture challenges. It just seems like there's a lot of this going on. I mean, Coke is one example, but there's a lot of financial services companies that are trying to deal with the new upstarts and disruptive players, whether it's robo-advisors or other, other means. It's funny. It's probably the one, you know, there's always an issue about positioning and all that like we talked about earlier about what you want your brand to stand for and thinking about that and how rich and the different aspects and you know, that's always pretty fundamental as in differentiation as we said and relevance and all those things. But architecture is one it's this uniquely branding sort of issue that comes up, you know, constantly in brand strategy. And ironically, a lot of times it you don't start there, but you end up there because you're dealing with some problem or some issue and you realize, wow, there's an architecture question here about, you know, the sub brands or the portfolio or the extension. So there's a whole lot to deal with there. And I have to say most companies, brand architectures, they, they almost always can be improved because often they're done in a very bottom-up way. So not sort of top-down in a very strategic, deliberate, maybe thoughtful way, sort of just more organic. And, and so you all of a sudden you step back and you look because it's bottom-up and you realize, wow, it's kind of all over the map. So to me, you know, some of the real key ones are a lot of it is brand extensions because that's so important because new products are so important to growth and success for a company. And so many of them are extensions. And to your point, I mean, permission is crucial, but it's only it's necessary, but not sufficient because there has to be, again, that differentiation in, that's, that occurs. So I talk about points of parity and points of difference that are so crucial to break even, and but also find areas that you're better in. And what happens with extensions is often consumers will give permission and but they won't necessarily once you know the brand makes that step that you know choose it so it's you know choice is different you know than saying would i be willing to buy it yes but would you buy it and i think that's different and there's a good friend of mine and, a, and one of the best marketers i know is, is scott bedberry who used to be at uh, nike and starbucks and he wrote a great book so my this is my second plug i guess uh, New brand <laughs> world which uh -huh. i highly recommend but he's got this rule in there called the spandex rule 
which I love because and it's basically it's about branding and extensions. And it's and it's just because you can doesn't mean you should. And, you know, it's the spandex rule because it's, you know, it applies to spandex too. <laughs> but uh, more importantly, it applies to the brand stretch, if you will. And I just think that there are way too many Me Too extensions that are basically violating the spandex rule because they can do what they do, uh, choose to do it. And yet they don't really, they shouldn't because they don't have enough permission to do that. So, you know, to me, that's one of the really, really big issues. And then, you know, otherwise, you know, with architecture, a lot of it is about the portfolio and sub-branding appropriately. And I think in general, you know, again, we lots of things we could talk about, but the other thing I just mentioned, you know, now is, is just this notion that just fewer, stronger brands is the way to go. And I think the one mistake with a lot of architecture is it's overly branded, it's too internal, it's not consumer facing enough. And just keep it simple as much as you can, you know, try to not have as many brands use product descriptors, you know, don't confuse people and and really try to make it as just simple and transparent as possible. Well, I think that's good advice. Well, I love to get to know the person I'm talking to in each of my interviews. So I want to kind of step back a little bit from all this marketing speak and see one of my favorite questions to ask is what experience in your past kind of defines or, or makes up who you've become? Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I, my background, my dad was in the Air Force. He was literally a rocket scientist. He was a physicist. So I grew up with, you know, a very, that sort of a background and sort of unusual background, didn't move around a whole lot, but had those sort of wherever he was based there in Wright-Patterson in Dayton and whatever. So always had an appreciation, I think, for science and all of that. But also in just being part of the Air Force, I think there's just something about being part of a community and being empathetic. And there's just something that I think was really fundamental for me. And that's, I think, a big part of what I think makes good marketers. I think there's, I think being able to empathize and project and understand others is really crucial. I think that was something that I think came out of a lot of sort of my early experiences and just kind of growing up in that sort of, with two great, you know, great set of parents and having those kind of values. And that was something that, you know, I, I just think is, is just crucial to, to marketing. And I think it's harder than it seems. I think being able to really understand how others think, and especially the less similar they are to you, I think that reality is, you know, that realization, I think, is challenging, you know, to be able to overcome that. But that's something that, and I've moved around a lot. I've lived a lot of, you know, went to a lot of different schools, been to a lot of different places, you know, and so I think that's helped me a lot to try to, and, you know, and always had to kind of work hard to get what I, you know, trying to improve myself and get better at what I was doing. And whether in school or after that, you know, being a professor and writing and everything. And I think that definitely is that drive, I think, to try to having this passion for marketing, but also this drive to constantly be better at it and learn more. And, and that's just kind of fueled my whole life, really. So uh, that was, yeah, all kind of came, but that's maybe some of the origins, at least of that. What makes you get up every day? What kind of drives you personally? I love being a professor. I think it's, I'm so glad I chose this career path. You know, I came out of an MBA program at work and I enjoyed that too. I was at Bank of America and, and it was a fun time and I loved being in San Francisco and everything about that. I love the intellectual challenge of trying to understand how things really work in a rigorous scientific way because you can make lots of statements, but how do you prove it? How do you know that's true? And how do you go about testing that? And and I learned so much from, that's why I love writing textbooks, because I get to study so many other people's research besides doing my own. So I love that side. And I love working with companies. I mean, I've always 
that's the other part of what I do or whether it's having that chance to, you know, that part I think is really, really the, the more practical side. So the academic side, you have the research, the teaching and all of that I think is really cool. And then the chance to work with companies and speak with them and learn from them and get involved in their problems and, and using that to drive my research so it becomes this really virtuous cycle or circle that I think is really neat. So that's what, what gets me up is there's always things I want to be doing, writing, thinking about. So like I said, if just if you love marketing, it's there's just always something happening that you want to think about. You know, like what does that mean? Why is Coke doing that? What are the implications of that? How would you, you know, what's that mean conceptually or strategically and practically? And so, I mean, that to me is a lot of the, and so it's that I always want to be rigorous and relevant and that's pretty much what drives, you know, gets me up and, you know, keeps me going through the day. Yeah, that's very cool. I, similar, share similar uh, passions, obviously, to yeah, marketing. Exactly. Are there any brands or, or companies that you kind of personally follow or, or you think other people, maybe even causes, you think other people should be taking notice of? I look at a lot of the big companies still. I think the Nikes and P&Gs and the American Expresses, the ones who are established and have made their mark in marketing. Now, those are all, I think, some of the more accomplished marketing companies. You know, Apple, so, you know, sort of the kind of that classic, almost you want to think of them as the Hall of Famers, if you will. And, and even that relatively younger entrance into that, like Starbucks and Red Bull and companies like that, who I think, you know, really made their mark. And then there's obviously a whole set of even younger companies, and most of them are more tech-oriented to Facebook. I mean, just Facebook, Google, and Amazon. I mean, those three are going to be, I mean, that's going to be a challenge, you know, just to keep up with all the things they're doing and try to make sense of them. And I do think they're important to follow, so I'm certainly doing that. And then lastly, I think the other ones would be the ones who are really trying to, you know, change categories, and obviously Uber and Airbnb brands like that, but, you know, Warby Parker and some of the ones who are taking a conventional category, and, you know, Method did that even longer ago, a conventional category and kind of turning it upside down through, you know, a lot of innovation. And, and the challenge for any of these is to sustain that. And, you know, how do you make sure that you, it's truly transformational. And so I, I think those are the other ones. And then in terms of causes, I'm just always interested in anything in terms of social, you know, environmental, I just follow those a lot. They're very interesting to sort of see what's going on. Personal cause for me is autism. We have a daughter who's autistic. And so that's something I'm always interested in, in special needs and what kinds of things are being done in the causes that kind of go around that and in terms of education and support and research, et cetera. So, I mean, that's, there's always lots of things going on in that area too. And so that's why it's always, you know, every day you've got so much to read and keep up on because there's so many developments for all these companies and in, in the field as a whole. Last question I always ask people, and probably no better person to ask than yourself, is what do you think the future of marketing is going to look like? You know, that's, it's a great question. And it's, you know, I think the technology obviously is just this incredible force that's going to change so much. And the mobile especially is just transforming the way people shop and, and literally the way they kind of run their lives. I mean, I'm just fascinated to watch sometimes how much time people spend on a phone, phone at, at a sporting event you know, or at a concert or whatever. So trying to capture, either trying to capture the moment or being somewhere else or just trying to share it or something like that. But 
there's just an awful lot going on with technology. I think the globalization side is fascinating in marketing. Again, some of these are not new trends, but I think the, the, the they're just powerful forces that have just huge implications in the developing markets and looking at China and other India and other countries. It's just fascinating. I think the social responsibility is going to become more and more important. I think that's part of the equation and trying to factor that in and, and also the marketing for those causes to make sure it's they're done. So I mean, so I think there's I look at the breadth of marketing and the channels and omnichannel and how that's gonna unfold as retailing changes and more companies try to figure out how to distribute products directly or who to partner with and try to establish those partnerships and and back to I think the role of design I think is a huge one that's changing transforming products and services and the beauty of design is is, is how a product works looks and feels it's functional and aesthetic so it's really truly you know pushing the brands like the apples and the samsungs who, who just embrace that have, have benefited so much so that's a power you know another powerful force i think the pricing side of marketing in terms of value and the consumers now i think are so much savvier about that and then trying to really understand that but also what flexibility how dynamic you can be with pricing i mean those are all and then obviously integrated communications we were talking about earlier. So there's just a lot going on. So it's an exciting time. And I think it's an art and a science. And that's the future marketing is, is still going to be an art and a science. It's still going to be how you can do things technically better, but also how can you do things creatively, you know, with a certain philosophy of how things work and marketing and what's the best way to, to design and, and implement and execute, you know, marketing programs. So very, very exciting time. Well, it's been a great conversation. I can't thank you enough for coming on the show today. Oh, it's my pleasure. I really enjoyed the chance to get to know you a little bit better and also have the chance to do the, this interview. Marketing Today is brought to you by Atomic. Atomic focuses on unleashing the growth potential for clients we serve. Atomic is a strategic consultancy specializing in business, marketing, brand, and innovation. Our singular goal is to help you accelerate your efforts with the right mix of expertise, analysis, and creativity. Check us out at atomic.com. A-T-O-M-C-K.com. Hi, it's Alan again. Marketing Today was created and produced by me with project management by Sarah Williams, audio production by Aaron Campbell, writing and editing by Kevin Greeley, social media support by Megan Woods, art and graphic design by Sarah Dell. If you're new to Marketing Today, please feel free to write us a review on iTunes or your favorite listening platform. Don't forget to subscribe and tell your friends and colleagues about the show. We love to hear from listeners at info at atomic, A-T-O-M-C-K dot com. I'm Alan Hart, and this is Marketing Today. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that 
Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.